From WSCFM and HD1 Columbia, I'm Ward Jollis. And I'm Erin Slowey. This is Localize from WUSC News. The Gamecock community was shocked Sunday with the news of head football coach Will Muschamp's firing. The response has been mixed, from celebrations on Twitter to apprehension about the rest of the season. And on top of that, four players have opted out three of the remaining games. Here to tell us more is Tom Santinello, executive producer of SUTV's Capital City Sports. Also, with many looking forward to Thanksgiving next week, we'd like to take this opportunity to look back. 2020 has been a year of looking toward the future, but also reckoning with the past. Tonight, we're going to break down the true story behind the first Thanksgiving. All that, coming up. The news is first. Live from WSC News, I'm Summer Rogers. With the holiday season just around the corner, USC officials are encouraging students to get tested for the coronavirus before going home. The campus alert level has not changed from new normal, though cases across the country are rapidly increasing. WSC's Abigail Brandon reports. With Thanksgiving holidays quickly approaching, the university is asking all students to get tested for COVID-19 before going home to their families. Testing hours had been extended this week, beginning at 9 a.m. and ending at 4 p.m. There will also be tests available this weekend on Davis Field from 9 a.m. to noon, both Saturday and Sunday. President Bob Caslin sent out an email telling students that there was, quote, no good reason not to get tested. The university's COVID-19 dashboard currently says that there are 72 active cases of COVID-19 on campus. Thanksgiving break begins on Wednesday the 25th, and all classes will be fully online after the holidays. With WUSC News, I'm Abigail Brandon. On the state level, South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster held a briefing last night addressing recent COVID-19 concerns with state officials, ranging from the Thanksgiving holiday, encouraging testing before traveling, and more. WSC's Spencer Buckler reports. Public schools in South Carolina are going to have better access to COVID testing. Governor McMaster says he will soon be issuing an executive order mandating the distribution of rapid COVID testing kits to every public school in the state. The tests will take about 15 minutes to get results. They're provided by the federal government. Tests will be available to students, faculty, and staff who have symptoms. Spencer Buckler, WUSC News. Columbia. After historic presidential election that took days to declare former Vice President Biden as the winner, a recount in multiple states has been issued by President Trump. States in question include Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, with Georgia's result rolling in this afternoon. Abigail Brandon has more. The presidential race in Georgia was officially called for Joe Biden following a hand tally of ballots, which resulted in a 12,000-vote lead for Biden. Georgia isn't the only swing state whose vote totals are making news. The Trump administration paid $3 million to the Wisconsin Elections Committee for a partial recount of the state. Donald Trump also asked Michigan Republican lawmakers to come meet with him tonight following their certification of Wayne County's vote total. With WUSC News, I'm Abigail Brandon. 
After letting go of head coach Will Muschamp last week, the Gamecocks will face off against Missouri tomorrow night in Williams-Brice. Since announcing their release of Muschamp, several players have chosen to sit out the rest of the year with a total of four players now opting out. The Gamecocks are 2-5 this season, with the Missouri Tigers coming in at 2-3. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 219 points today, the NASDAQ fell 49 points, and the S&P 500 dropped 24 points. It's currently 63 degrees outside and sunny with a low of 45 tonight. Tomorrow will be sunny and 73 with a low of 48 tomorrow night. I'm Summer Rogers, and you're listening to WUSC News. It's 6.04. Cola Concerts presents St. Paul and the Broken Bones live in concert at the Columbia Speedway Entertainment Center this Friday, November 20th at 8 p.m. You can experience the concert from your socially distanced seating cove, and more information can be found at colaconcerts.com. Cola Concerts is a proud supporter of WUSC and provided promotional consideration in exchange for this announcement. Hi, I'm Ward Jollis, news director at WUSC News and host of the WUSC News show, Localize. At WUSC News, we take the biggest stories and headlines of the week and bring them to you at the local scale so that you can stay informed and maybe learn a thing or two. Inspired by NPR, driven by conversation, join us. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 6 here on WUSC-FM. Hey, Kate. Yeah. You know that iconic WUSC PSA with the guy that grew lobster claws for hands because he had bad karma? You mean Lobster Boy? Yeah. Very iconic, of course. Right. So I tried going to the website the other day and it doesn't work anymore. I thought it was like a website for service so you could get better karma. Exactly. They want you to get out and vote and do community service and just be a good person. So you know what else makes you a good person? Listening to WUSC because... We support local artists. Exactly. And And we're cool. That's good karma. So keep Mm -hmm. listening to WUSC FM and HD1 Columbia. I think I like it. You're listening to Localize from WSC News. I'm Erin Slowey. News that Will Muschamp has been relieved of his position as head football coach sent shockwaves through the Carolina community this week. While many are excited for the chance to welcome new talent after a disappointing season, others wonder why the decision was made now and how it will affect the rest of the season. To make things worse, four players have opted out of the final three games of the year. Tom Santanella, executive producer of SGTV's Capital City Sports, is here to break down what it all means for the team and what fans can expect going forward. Thank you for joining me, Tom. How are you doing? I'm good, Aaron. How are you? Good, good. So to start us off, Sunday evening, Gamecock Athletics announced that head football coach Will Muschamp would be released from coaching immediately. This comes after a recent loss to Ole Miss and losses against Texas A&M and LSU. What do you think was the turning point for the university to fire Muschamp? I think that it was just that fan apathy was at a point where keeping Muschamp was going to be more costly than keeping him. Obviously, we've seen on Twitter a lot of players have rushed to Muschamp's defense. He was a real players coach. But when you come in and you're touted as a defensive mind, a guy who really gets things done on that side of the ball, and you're giving up 334 passing yards per game over the past three games, 159 points over the past three games, over 700 yards of offense against LSU, 
I think the program was clearly headed in the wrong direction, and I think that the fans had just given up, and there was just no more patience from them. So you talked about cost a little bit. Um, Mushamp had a buyout in his initial contract. What have you heard about what was being negotiated and the buyout that was initially taken? As of now, his buyout is a little over $13.3 million. Um, you know, there's a clause in that that Muschamp can take a little bit less money. I'm not sure that him and Ray Tanner are going to come to an agreement on that. If you know, if I was Muschamp, the 13.3 million to walk away from a job sounds pretty nice. <laughs> but obviously, he loves South Carolina, so we'll see what happens. So, good th- news for South Carolina is that Ray Tanner says even with the hefty buyout, none of the other programs are going to be impacted. So, the athletic department's finances, you know, that's a really big question. Do they have the money for the buyout? The answer is they do, and I think that's because they have that fan support from the donors and whatnot. But buyout $13.3 million, which was a little bit less than it was last year, I think it was supposed to be something like $17, $18 million. So they renegotiated that, and it obviously worked out for the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in his five years at South Carolina, Muschamp has had a 28-30 and 30 record. 2017 and 2018 were the only two seasons with winning records. That being said, do you think this decision came as a surprise to fans? I think that if you've watched South Carolina over the past two years and you were shocked by Sunday's news, then you just must not have been watching closely enough. The program was clearly headed in the wrong direction. You know, his the stat that he would always tout is that him and his staff had won more games in South Carolina in their first three years than any coaching staff in the university's history. Last year, four wins. This year, they're sitting at two and six, and it kept getting uglier and uglier. I think that people were already calling for his head last year, and then the past three games where the team didn't even look remotely competitive for most of those three games, there is just nothing else that the athletic department could do or to justify keeping him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so offensive coordinator Mike Bobo will now serve as the interim head coach for the remainder of the season. What can we expect from him and the team now under his leadership for the last couple of games? He's talked about that the team still has a great opportunity. They have three games, Missouri tomorrow, Georgia next week, and then Kentucky to wrap up the season. I think that the team is lucky that Mike Bobo has had head coaching experience before he comes from Colorado State. Not the most successful there, but he knows what it takes to run a program. He has a great coaching pedigree coming from Georgia and other SEC schools. So I really think that the offense, they're going to open it up tomorrow night. I think that they're going to get creative. Mike Bobo's playing with house money because unless he goes 3-0, and I think he understands that he's really not going to be the head coach of the future for South Carolina. So he's got nothing to lose here. So I think that you're going to see a lot of creativity on offense, whether it's reverses, flu flickers, double passes, stuff of that nature. But with that said, I don't think Mike Bowe is going to get too cute on offense. Kevin Harris is coming off of a record-setting performance last week where he ran for five touchdowns, 243 yards. I think they're going to keep feeding him the rock. He's been one of the most productive running backs in the country. And then Keep looking to Shy Smith on the outside. Him and Colin Hill have really established a really nice chemistry throughout the season. So look for more of the same, but just look for a few wrinkles here and there to make the offense a little bit more exciting. Mm-hmm. So talking about the future of South Carolina head coaches, a big question that a lot of people have right now is who will replace Muschamp? So what are some things that you think South Carolina should look for in a coach? I think the first thing they have to do is, even though the defense has been struggling so much over the past few games, they have to look for an offensive mind. I think that you know, the defense has struggled this year and even a little bit last year. But the first few years under Will Muschamp, the defense was one of the better in the conference. So I think they need someone who is young. I think they need someone with head coaching experience, and they need someone who's a proven winner. I'm not sure where they're going to be able to find that. You know, you hear the names Hugh Freeze. He comes with some baggage from some off-the-field stuff at Ole Miss. You hear Billy Napier at Louisiana Lafayette. He comes from a nice coaching pedigree at Clemson and other SEC schools. And then you hear Shane Beamer at Oklahoma, who's young, all three of them young, offensive-minded coaches who could really be successful here in Columbia. 
but I think that the one thing that co- that the fan base needs to understand is this is not an easy place to win. There's a lot of resources in place for the next coach to be successful, but they really need more patience than they gave Will Muschamp because the you know if you've looked on Twitter, every player who's played for Muschamp is saying he did the best with what he had. The pieces just weren't in place for him to be successful yet, and he deserved a few more years. Obviously, he didn't get them, so I think that whoever Ray Tanner in the athletic department decides to hire, fans should be prepared for five to seven years at least because they they got to give that coach that time unless it's an absolute dumpster fire from day one. Mm-hmm. So athletic director Ray Tanner said in a press conference on Monday that South Carolina has a goal to hire a new football coach by December 16th. This would be right around the early signing period for potential new players. What impact do you think that not having a head coach and Muschamp's firing will have on the recruitment process? Well, you've seen it already. A few um, recruits, none of the big ones that they've been banking on in this class, have already decommitted. You've seen players opt out, obviously. I think you're going to see players from this roster transfer because they were such big Muschamp guys. So I think that losing Muschamp hurts recruiting, obviously. But I think that you know, Athletic Director Tanner is in the right frame of mind where he wants to have a coach by National Signing Day because it gives the student-athlete a lot more security and peace of mind if they know what they're stepping into because it's hard to commit to a school when you don't even know who your coach is going to be, you know, if there's still a spot for you. So I think that it's going to be really important for them to move swiftly but still do their due, gil- excuse me, their due diligence that they're getting a coach who's going to be successful, but they need someone by that early signing period. Yeah, so you touched on a little bit the players who've opted out. Cornerback J.C. Horn was the first of four players to announce that he will be opting out for the remainder of the season. Horn said he will use that time to prepare for the NFL draft. How do you think NFL scouts will view this decision when there are players on other teams continuing to play the rest of their season? I think that the body of work that J.C. Horn has put in over the past two-plus years speaks for itself. He's proven that he's one of the best cornerbacks in the country. He's a top athlete. He's going to be incredibly successful at the next level, I think. I think he's going to be a late first-round pick, early second-round pick. And especially in a year like this with the coronavirus and stuff like that, a lot of players have opted out. I really don't think it hurts his stock that much because he had such a good body of work going into it. You look back at that Auburn game where he had his first two career interceptions, and he was outstanding against Seth Williams from Auburn, who's one of the best receivers in the country. So I don't think this really impacts him and his stock too much. Mm -hmm. In that same press conference on Monday, former South Carolina quarterback Connor Shaw was announced as a quarterback coach, adding now a 10th coach to the team. How do you think adding this role will change how South Carolina's quarterbacks perform on the field? I'm not sure that it changes how the quarterbacks perform on the field. I think Colin Hill is what he sees and slightly above average game manager. He usually puts the ball in the right place. He gets it to his playmakers. He doesn't try to do too much. But I do think that just overall team morale, this is a great decision by Mike Bobo as interim head coach. Connor Shaw obviously loves South Carolina. If you listen to him on Tuesday at his press conference, you know it, it had me wanting to run through a brick wall, so I can only imagine what he's saying <laughs> to the players. So I think that it's going to be better for team morale as they kind of try to rally the troops for these last three games, especially with players opting out, a lot of questions surrounding the future of the program. I think that Connor Shaw is more going to be a morale guy and I'll make you feel good than X's and O's. So South Carolina will face off against Mizzou at 7.30 tomorrow. Uh, last thing, as always, before we go, what is your score prediction for tomorrow's game at home? It's interesting. You know, whenever there's a coaching change midseason, that first game either goes really poorly or really well. And I happen to think that tomorrow's going to go pretty well for the Gamecocks. I'm going to take South Carolina 27, Missouri 24. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for joining me, Tom. That's all the time that we have. That was Tom Santanella, executive producer of Capital City Sports.
This is WSC News. Here we go. You're rolling through the mall with your girls when, bam, you see a mannequin sporting a slamming top and it's hooked up with a blazing miniskirt. Suddenly, you see yourself flossing it to the big game this weekend. <laughs> you start looking for the ATM. And one of your girls checks you. Honey, that skirt is way too short. <laughs> That's the kind of skirt you can't sit down in, not without showing all your business. And that could be a problem because you're always sitting in your wheelchair. All because you didn't think you needed a seatbelt just to run out to the store. Then that truck came out of nowhere and whack. If you had only known that most accidents occur close to home, you would have been wearing your seatbelt. And the story wouldn't have gotten all twisted. And you wouldn't have gotten hemmed up. So buckle up. Because you never know. This message has been brought to you by the Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Ward Jollis, news director at WUSC News and host of the WUSC News show, Localize. At WUSC News, we take the biggest stories and headlines of the week and bring them to you at the local scale so that you can stay informed and maybe learn a thing or two. Inspired by NPR, driven by conversation, join us. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 6 here on WUSC-FM. What's up, Gamecocks? It's Schuler from Death Drive 90.5. We're all stoked to be back on campus, but we've got to remember that the threat of COVID-19 is still very real and very present. Take measures to protect those around you and to protect yourself. Wear that mask. Wash your hands. Stay six feet apart. Don't eat anything that you find on the ground. Stop licking doorknobs. Let's all work together for a COVID-free campus. Because rifts should be sick. You should keep it healthy, keep it safe, and keep it locked to 90.5. WUSC-FM and HD1 Columbia. You're listening to Localize from WUSC News. I'm Morjalis. If you grew up in the American school system, you've probably got elementary school memories of taking a day off regular class to color some pictures of some turkeys and learn about the pilgrims and Indians. We all know the story about the month spent huddled in the Mayflower to arrive in the New World and survive against all odds with the help of friendly local tribes of Native Americans. It's a pretty story, yeah, a comforting one, but as the country reckons with the problems of its present, many people are looking to the stories we're told about our past, about the details they gloss over, and the perspectives that get left out. Here to talk with us about the true story of the first Thanksgiving is Dr. Nicole Maskeel. She is an assistant professor in the Department of History. Uh, Dr. Maskeel, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so Dr. Maskeel, Thanksgiving is coming up, and that means school kids around the country are going to be reenacting these common scenes that we see come up every year. This image of the pilgrims coming over in the Mayflower to America, being greeted by the friendly unnamed Indians with headdresses on who teach them how to live off the land, and then they all have this big feast together and live happily ever after. I mean, how accurate is this depiction in this scenario? Right. So this this depiction in this scenario um, is in, in, is very inaccurate, <laughs> and it's inaccurate in important ways. Um, the ways in which we tell 
history really have real world application to the lives that people live in the now, right? Um, history isn't something that just happened 400 years ago, um, but, but it's important to um, things like um, social justice and reparations and community action today. Uh, and of course, um, one thing we know about this story is, is it was a story um, that, that was simplified in order to tell a specific story about settlements in, in the United States during the 19th century. Um, but in terms of what happened on the real, on the first Thanksgiving, um, uh, as based on these stories, we have to kind of go back um, to the original accounts. Um, now, one, the, the way we know that the pilgrims actually did celebrate a day of Thanksgiving um, is from Thomas Bradford's account um, on Plymouth Plantation. And so that's where we're getting kind of this idea. But of course, it had bears absolutely mm. no um, resemblance <laughs> to the holiday and, and the ways in which these images come to us from today. And I want to kind of start with the um, the usual suspects that we talk about, the pilgrims, yeah. um, the the native peoples, the the Indians, uh, specifically Squanto, and, and then this notion of peaceful harmony, Thanksgiving, happy yeah. um, idea. <laughs> so um, stop me if you kind of have any questions about uh, the details. But of course, as we know, there's this idea that um, the pilgrims um, kind of came on the Mayflower. They they landed on a place called Plymouth Rock, and they um, they were so happy and thankful they got the help from, as you said, um, unnamed, faceless uh, Indians. Maybe some people know about Squanto. This idea um, there's this person here who was kind of helpful, and you know they were welcomed and and, and loved, and and they were just so happy that you know there was this moment of Thanksgiving. In reality, um, the pilgrims were um, were fleeing from religious persecution in England, and they first didn't come to what would be um, um, Plymouth, uh, Massachusetts, will be named Plymouth, Massachusetts. They actually went to um, the Netherlands, what is now um, the Kingdom of the Netherlands oh, wow. in Europe. And then while they were there, they were really, uh, they were really upset that their children were being um, were being basically exposed to this very multicultural, um, this very multicultural place. The Netherlands opened opened their arms to them um, because they were a place that people would run to um, to flee religious persecutions. They had um, religious. Um, uh, they had religious freedom intact, and so you have a, a large communities of Jews. You have large communities of different flavors of um, Protestant dissenters who are coming there, but it was a little bit too liberal, um, too religiously fluid for the for the pilgrims, for the separatists, and so they decided to kind of embark uh, on this journey. Now, these they didn't have enough money to finance the journey alone, uh, so they had people known as strangers that they called strangers on the boat with them that were not separatists, they were not pilgrims, they were just kind of on um, on the ride. Now, they were blown far off course, far off course. And when they realized that they were blown so far off the course, they realized the people who were the strangers were like, wait a minute, we didn't sign up for this. Maybe we can renegotiate, um, <laughs> we can renegotiate the terms of this debate. <laughs> and so they basically hashed out, um, renegotiated, I guess, their, their position in the society um, on the boat off the shore um, before they arrived. And that is, of course, the famous May Mayflower conflict. 
compact. That was always a part of our reenactments, the Mayflower Compact. Now they didn't land on Plymouth Rock. There was, uh, Plymouth Rock was actually something that a man who in the late 18th century, so right after the revolution, he said, oh yeah, you know, my, my father, um, he was actually a, a pilgrim and he remembers that they landed on Plymouth Rock. And that is the only reason, that is the only connection we have <laughs> to Plymouth Rock, but it's come into the history. Yeah. And when they got there, they did encounter a man that they nicknamed, um, Governor Bradford nicknamed Squanto. His name was Tisquantum, um, and he was a Patuxet. He was um, one of, and that was one of more than 50 tribes who formed the Wampanoag Confederacy, who form, so I want to use the present tense, the Wampanoag Confederacy. Uh, um, he had had a very harrowing life before meeting the pilgrims. Around 1614, when he was perhaps 30, he was kidnapped along with others of his people and taken across the Atlantic Ocean as a slave. Um, and he was enslaved in uh, Malaga, Spain. Oh, wow. Um, and he spent time um, in Spain um, and he made a way to find his way back. And, but by the time he was able to find his way back uh, to home, um, a terrible uh, disease had wiped out, had, had just ravaged his people. And so he was trying to, he was actually kind of um, um, a, a refugee uh, and trying to kind of negotiate his way within um, the um, neighboring um, um, Native group who took him in. And so he was using this moment um, in order to kind of renegotiate the terms of his own existence. So this is a much more deeper political yeah. story. And of course, um, than what we learn. Yeah, of course. And, At least and there's, what I learned. there's also, I just want to ask about, there's this other, there's this other idea that comes up a lot in the retelling of this verse, Thanksgiving. And it's this concept that Native Americans at the time, uh, you mentioned the Wampanoag specifically, had this idea of land not belonging to any one person and is something that should be shared with everyone, even, you know, these encroaching Europeans. Uh, I mean, is there any truth to that ideology at all about how Native Americans viewed the land? Where does this come from? Um, and what do you think it means about how we tell hist retell our history? Well, I think that it's important. It, it, it's been an important point made in the in the history of the first Thanksgiving, precisely because of when this story became popularized. This is um, in, the, in the late 19th century, when um, you know, you know, during these these land grabs that are happening in the West, and they're trying to re retell a history of um, of a time when Native peoples were just giving land away, right? They didn't understand land use. They didn't understand, um, they, 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 they believed that the land was something that was to be shared. But in reality, um, the, the, the pilgrims, the separatists, the people on the Mayflower are landing into a political situation where um, different different groups are jockeying for position for control of resources. Now, it is true um, that, um, that that land use, uh, there were different notions of land use between you know, Western Europeans, um, in this case, the English, and um, the, the, the um, native um, Northeastern um, uh, Indians. There, there definitely is. But this idea that, that, that there was no kind of conception of land, that everyone was just kind of sharing things, uh, is, is, is dreadfully false and, and purposely false, right? It, it, it was created kind of looking backwards in order to basically write in native uh, um, acquiescence to what was essentially um, 
um, what was essentially um, a, a campaign yeah. of ethnic cleansing. Yeah. And also another – I want to shift gears a little bit to another point too. I mean there's almost like this narrative too of European colonial history that begins with the Mayflower arriving at Plymouth Rock, which is <laughs> completely inaccurate. I mean Europeans were interacting with Native people for a long time before the Pilgrims' arrival. Uh, I mean why do you think this particular event – has gone down in history as some sort of first contact episode and this big celebration that we've carried on for so long. Well, there's a couple of kind of reasons why this place and this event has gone down in history. Um, it was first kind of presented during the 19th century, right before the Civil War, right, right, right as the sectional divide starts happening, it was presented as an alternative to um, the uh, America's true origin story, which of course is Jamestown. Um, and that story was much more, much too doggy dog, right? People going and kind of search of profit to the point where they even, you know, start to cannibalize each other. I mean, this is the true you know, oh origin story. And that was kind of put forward as, well, no, let's, this is, let's, let's put forward this notion of people leaving to kind of, um, to, to get away from religious persecution. That's our true narrative. But I think it's interesting, especially since we're in South Carolina, is that the earliest known day of Thanksgiving in South Carolina was actually observed by French soldiers um, at Paris Island oh. um, in, um, in the year 1564. So in, uh, in the 16th century. So this is predating. We're in a different century. Yeah. This is much, much earlier. So it shows this kind of deep history of, of European, right, um, uh, colonization yeah. and um, also the importance of different places as first. Yeah. Yeah. And, and another thing that I, I mean, we couldn't have an interview about Thanksgiving without talking about the food a little bit. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the that's that's honestly my favorite part. Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> Thanksgiving <laughs> is my favorite holiday because of that. So, I mean, it's evolved in a new Thanksgiving itself, like you said, had been celebrated way before uh, 1620 as well. And it's evolved in numerous ways over the years, one of which are the staple foods. Uh, you know, that have become really popular. Turkey, dressing, sweet potatoes, uh, you know. But were these actually foods that people would be eating at the first Thanksgiving? And how have these foods in particular become so popular at the Thanksgiving table every year? Right. Well, they definitely would not be eating um, some of the things that we eat, though some of the things they would have would have been recognizable. Turkey uh, was ubiquitous, um, is ubiquitous in, in, in North America, and it was a bird that was eaten. Um, but probably the most prevalent food that they would have eaten um, was lobster. And in fact, I used to live in um, in the Boston area and frequently would would, would go up to Plymouth. Um, you could have this wonderful B&B right there and you have a re, there's a reenactment of the Mayflower right there. And all you see is lobster, lobster, lobster. You even see some primary source documents of indentured servants getting tired of being fed lobster. So there would be a lot of seafood. <laughs> wow on the table um, during these these times of, of Thanksgiving, um, certainly. Um, but but some of the, the ways in which our, our foods actually reflect our different geographies. Um, take for example, sweet potato pie, uh, whatever is on your, 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 your um, whether you have mashed potatoes or a different type of, of potato is featured. It shows the different yeah. uh, 
regional right variation um where you're from what what you serve on thanksgiving really can tell you where you're from yeah interesting yeah and one last thing for me really quick before i let you go the thanksgiving holiday you know despite this kind of conflicted history that we have about it uh, does offer some time for connection between friends and family and, you know, recognition of all these things that we can often take for granted. But, you know, like we talked about, these these depictions and portrayals of the actual history can be a little problematic. Um, so, Dr. Maschio, my final, my final question to you is, when people are celebrating the holiday this year, what do you think is the most important thing that people should take into consideration when celebrating this time in our early history in continuing this tradition. Right, I think that people should remember where our stories come from and that we are part of the story and and, and, the, and the memories we make today, the things that we do to um, serve our neighbors, to be there for one another, to be present with one another in community. Those are the types of Thanksgiving stories that will be brought into the future. And that's what, what people in 150 years, 200 years will be looking back and saying, and during the early decades of the 21st century, Thanksgiving was created anew, and we have a chance to do that. And I hope we all do that together um, yeah. and, and, and strive to do that into the future. All right. Well, Dr. Maskeel, thank you so much for joining us today and offering all of that insight. It was very interesting. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That was Dr. Nicole Maskeel, Assistant Professor of History and Historian specializing in early American history. And that's it for this episode of Localize. Make sure to join us every Friday at 6 p.m. for our local take on this week's biggest stories. Localize is a production by WSC News and is produced by Mary Bryant Charles and Ward Jollis. The outreach coordinator for Localize is Rita Naidu, and the music for the show is called Freedom by Atch. If you want to listen to other news shows and WSC News podcasts, you can find those at garnetmediagroup.org or under WSC News on all podcasting platforms. Brady Fitzgerald has it sports. Up next, I'm Ward Jollis. And I'm Aaron Slowey. Have a happy Thanksgiving, everyone. See you in a couple weeks.